I must first, as usual, sincerely apologize because I decided to change the topic. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. I can't even say that it's really about the same thing because I simply want to present you what I'm working on now and I think it's, uh, it's better than I, what I planned to do than the other stuff. What I want to talk to... I know that I always begin with, I warn you, it's not the usual joke, it's more boring than you expect, but this time it will really be bad, but nonetheless, maybe acceptable to you, because what I want to do today, don't be afraid of the abstract topic, I think I do a nice relevant line, it's uh, simply uh, a defense of Hegel, apropos modern art. Because, you know, I'm like an automat, this black box. You put something into it, you get out. Uh, what was put into me was uh, the last book by Robert Pippin, the American Hegelian, after the beautiful Hegel and the philosophy of pictorial modernism. The thesis, sorry, uh, does this, how should I do more? Uh, the, the thesis of this book, it's a very nice one. It is that... Uh, uh, Hegel's aesthetic simply relies on a too narrow notion of art, but too narrow not because of our later experience of modernity, which Hegel didn't conceptualize because there was no modern art the way we define it today at Hegel's time, but much more radically that Hegel, uh, that measured by Hegel's own standards, implied in Hegel's aesthetics is already a notion of modern abstract art. That Hegel, in other words, wasn't Hegelian enough. And I think uh, Pippin does it in a quite convincing way, and from that I will, of course, be a little bit critical of Pippin and touch many other things. Uh, tomorrow, connected with this, because we will end up with the notion of comedy, horror, ugliness, and so on. Tomorrow, so that I bribe you, sorry, nervous as usual, uh, a, little, a little bit, uh, incidentally, you know this joke, I like it. When I make these sticks of mine, here you can see what idiot psychiatrists are. It happened to me, I'm not kidding, over 20 times at least that there was some idiot psychiatrist or psychoanalyst, and he claimed, oh, it's clear I'm on cocaine or whatever, <laughs> you know. I mean, I'm the only guy in my generation, uh, even although I'm from a communist country, because communists in my country were not stupid. Uh, when I was young, after 68, they did the same as in Poland, my friend told me. They more than tolerated silently even allowed drugs because they knew better for students to drink orgies and drugs than to do politics, you know. <laughs> and no, this is very interesting. Uh, friends from Poland told me that you remember, you don't remember, you are too young. After the Jar Jaruzelski military coup against Solidarność, all of a sudden the market was overflown by, by drugs in Poland and pornography and uh, oriental spiritualism. <laughs> you know, like anything to, to depoliticize uh, uh, the young. So I agree. I was recently at a theology conference, uh, not here in London, another one, where uh, 
we had a nice rebuttal. Somebody proposed it. You must know the joke of that thesis of, uh, you know, religion is the opium of the people. No, today the opium of the people is opium, like, <laughs> you don't need religion, no. Uh, what I want to say is that uh, uh, I was recently, and I will talk about him tomorrow, if you want a good book, it's very inexpensive one, my good friend, I'm proud to say this, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D U. P-U-Y, like yesterday. The French uh, rational choice theorist, theorist of catastrophes and so on, he's really a bright guy. He knows so much about all these paradoxes of retroactivity. Uh, uh, I had a public debate in Portland, Oregon, which is maybe the most civilized place in the United States, I claim. It certainly has... I think maybe the best bookstore in the world, and believe me, I know them, from Singapore to, to, uh, to, to Tokyo and so on. It's called Powell's. It's just incredible. Because it's like a mega bookstore, many floors, but it still has the, the atmosphere of that, how should I call it, uh, <laughs> small, authentic, not Barnes & Noble, big com Okay, so what I want to say is that I proposed the title and he enthusiastically accepted it. Is God. And we were not just provoking. There were some theologists there who were delighted. So it wasn't offensive, but the title was problematic for some. Is God dead, unconscious, evil, or just plainly stupid? And of course, we arrived at the, the last answer. No? That, like, if you think God screwed up, how could he allow Auschwitz and so on? The answer is, don't blame him. He was just confused. I mean, okay, so uh, uh, that's what I want to talk about tomorrow. And I will show you, now let's pray all the evening to faith or God that it will work there. I always have anxiety when you show something. A clip from a movie, if you don't have anything to do this, evening. It's certainly better than Interstellar. You can get it everywhere for free on, on YouTube or where. A very strange movie, the strangest movie I've seen recently, but it's from 82, an old one uh, by someone called, sorry, I didn't know him, maybe you do, uh, Michael Tolkien. It's a religious Christian movie but it's absolutely breathtaking what happens in that movie. Maybe I should begin, then we go on with that movie, so that I don't have to spend time introducing the movie tomorrow, so that I just begin with showing you the clip, and then we go on. And that will be the whole point. Why what this movie tells us in its ridicule, uh, 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 you can see there are still places there. I'm telling you this because then in my stupid, wounded narcissism, I just wait secretly when you will leave, you know, when you get bored, sorry. Uh, 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 it, you know why it's such, you know that I like to play these games of how, with a movie, where it could have ended. You know, like, how often you can make with, usually with good movies, this experiment, imagine ending 10 minutes earlier, or even in the middle of it, and it makes a perfectly consistent story. And I think many great movies have precisely this structure, that uh, 
naturally, if I may put it this way, by natural I mean um, uh, uh, according to our naturalized conventions, of course, it should have already ended and then surprisingly it goes on. If you allow me to, I'm well known from this, or people attacking me as self-plagiarizing, you know. When I was accused of quoting, using old stuff for comments, and they said self-plagiarizing is also plagiarizing. It's also plagiarism. Now, I like this. This means masturbation is also a form of rape, or what is <laughs> Self-rape, or what? I mean, uh, don't. I mean, I know. No, what I want to say is that... Uh, 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 in this field, yes, uh, for example, I hope I can presuppose that you know the two mega Hitchcocks, uh, Vertigo and Psycho. Did you notice that both has precisely this structure? Imagine Vertigo ending after Madeleine, later we know, the false Madeleine jumps down from the tower, so we think, and Scotty is alone. It's a perfect one hour and five minutes, I think, dark romantic movie about how two passionate love kills. You know, the message is he, Scotty, is so violently in love, he pushes her to death. And then at that point, you know, that inquiry where and so on uh, in the courtroom, uh, at that point, the movie could have ended. It would have been a perfectly consistent movie. Think the same goes for Psycho. I claim. Imagine ending just a little bit before uh, the shower murder. Like, she takes the shower, but without Norma Bates entering. It would be a perfect, in, the, in those uh, 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 19th century style of this moralistic short stories. It's a story of a young lady who succumbs to temptation, steals money, then stops in a motel, she uh, encounters the madman, Norman Bates, and sees in him, as it were, her own future. My God, if I follow that path, I will become like him, and changes his mind, purified himself of, uh, of the ultimate temptation or destruction avoided. It would have been a perfectly consistent story. And the same is with this film. Finally, I'm coming to the point. Michael Tolkien... He was, besides this film, known mainly for writing. He wrote the script for Robert Altman's, if you know it, about Hollywood corruption, confusion, the player, I think, the film. <coughs> it's a strange film. Mimi Rogers plays an ordinary working girl in L.A. During the day, she has these totally alienated jobs that automatically answering this phone service to give some address, whatever. And during the night, she is a swinging girl, orgies all the time, and so on. Then, as they say, she starts to feel emptiness in herself, whatever, and encounters in this swinging order another guy who they both feel the same emptiness, so they become fundamentalist Christians. They get married, they have a girl, and then we jump six years forward, where they have a six years again daughter, happily married, and her husband is murdered in a quite nonsensical way. I mean, just pure accident, some madman shoots him. And she is so broken down, how could this have happened, that she progresses even further into her religious delirium, and 
think that she hears a voice telling her, go to some de uh, uh, desert place near LA, in, to Arizona, I don't know where, and wait for God, wait for the rapture there, sorry. I maybe I forgot even this, the title of the film is Rapture. So wait for the rapture, God will come, pick you up, and with her daughter, she goes there, and wait for it. And she waits, waits for a couple of months, nothing happens. Then her daughter tells her, why don't we simply kill ourselves and go, you shoot me, then you shoot yourself and we go directly to our dead father to rejoin him. Okay, they go, uh, uh, after some deliberation, I will not go into it, uh, there are some minor subplots. She's also totally desperate, so she kills her daughter. Then in the last moment she stops, she doesn't kill herself. Because she knows that uh, if she kills herself, it's suicide, you cannot go to heaven. Uh, and totally desperate, uh, it's not that she's a crazy criminal. She, become, she becomes aware of what she did, so she goes to the police and admits everything, and she's in prison, totally broken down. At this point, that's my point, the film could have ended as a kind of a critical portrait of how far religious madness can bring you. Uh, now you are for the last 20 minutes, which are absolutely breathtaking, because you think for a moment that it will be one of those, I love them, you know, those left behind, countdown Jerusalem, those really crazy fundamentalist Christian films. <laughs> because what then happens in the prison, while she is in the prison cell, is that the end of the world and rapture, it happens, really. <laughs> you know, you're in a totally different... All of a sudden, the prison bars start to fall away, and some angel appears and said, rejoin God, go. And then she, together with the sheriff friend, it's a secondary show, uh, because, yes, her daughter immediately disappeared, is her daughter is raptured, I mean, goes to God. So she with that uh, uh, a sheriff there, they drive a car and you see shot deliberately in the most primitive way, uh, the four riders of the apocalypse riding around them and so on. And this is already a wonderful trick. The message, I read an interview with the director. It's a, is, uh, God appears as a kind of a tricky guy who counted on, you know, the trick was not the usual one. Oh, we took his message to literally, there is no hell, it's, hell is just a metaphor for hell in ourselves when we do something horrible. No, it's the, the message of God is, haha, when I described that apocalypse, you thought I was kidding. There was just a, no, 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 you, you, I did it, I told you. You got the four riders, it's exactly as I described it. No. And, uh, and then comes, so you thought it would be this type of uh, almost undecidable. You don't know it's a comedy, it's so ridiculous, or to be taken seriously in a fundamentalist way. But then with this sheriff, they come to a place which is basically, how do you call it, what's between heaven and hell, purgatorium, or what? Okay. It's kind of a desert place, not too attractive, and far there you can see heaven. It looks like heaven, some wonderful place. And from there, her daughter comes, already as an angel, whatever, and uh, tells her, come, me and 
my dad, your husband, we love you, we are waiting for you. Uh, just say, just tell, just tell us, just say, I love God. Just express your love for God and you will be immediately in heaven. And now comes the last twist of the movie, which quite shocked me. It's, I never expected after all this an authentic ethical act. Then she says, the last 20, minutes, 20 seconds, sorry. Then she says, no, God was so evil, stupid, what he did to me, I cannot say that I love him. And you, you see the point. The point is that, like, there is God. You see everything. She said, no. And the daughter tells her, asks her, but do you know what this means? Do you know how long you will stay here in Purgatorium? She says, yes, I know, forever. End of the film. I mean, why, what do I like about this? It's, of course, I read it as an atheist. But I think to be really a materialist, it's not enough to say there is no God or whatever. God is maybe a nice illusion, but one has to undermine it from within. You know, you know. Uh, I will tomorrow. I will refer to uh, to this guy Dupuy, and he has a complex theory on these uh, conditional statements and so on, which are I'm now even doing a little bit of logic because of that, which are a wonderful thing, name, uh, uh, sorry, not conditional, uh, counterfactuals, you know, because they are very complex. Look, for example, to give you just a sense of it, if you say, if Shakespeare didn't write Hamlet, then another person had to write it. This is true, because Hamlet exists, and if Shakespeare is not the author, then if we are not in a magic universe, somebody had. But if you say, if Shakespeare, how do you do this conditional? My English is not so good. Had not written Hamlet, another one would have. Ah, this is very problematic. And you know, in this way, you can read even, you can even see that how maybe the big problem of how to interpret Stalinism can be formulated in this way. For those who are still pro-communist, uh, uh, for, okay, for critics of Stalinism, they would have said the same thing as Engels, I think, not Marx, said about Napoleon. If not Napoleon, then another person had to appear like, it was in the air the necessity to pass from, uh, from uh, revolutionary republic to empire. If not, Napoleon, another one. But uh, this is, again, a problematic to determinist uh, position. And so my point is this one. Uh, here we come to these counterfactuals that to be an atheist, it's not enough to say, uh, it's not enough to say, if God were to exist, it would have been wonderful, but unfortunately he doesn't. No, one has to go to the end in this country and say, if God were to exist, it would have been horrible. You should from within demonstrate the horror of it. And the paradox, and there were some priests important who agreed with me, is that Christianity is the only religion which confronts this. this. That's what happens in the book. 
developed these 10 times in my books already. But that's the whole point of the book of Job. You know, I repeated this even here, I think, a couple of times. So the message of book of Job, the greatest, my God, the first book of Marxism, if you want. <laughs> because uh, the message of the book of Job uh, is not only this critique of ideology moment, you know, after things got screwed up, three or four theologist friends appear and each of them gives some bullshit to Job, no? You were punished because you must be guilty even if you don't know about its ideology. Each of the three theological friends come to convince Job that his suffering has some meaning. Then, that's the great moment, Jehovah, God comes and does something extremely surprising, almost at the level of rapture, this movie, and says, no, all that the three theological friends are saying is bullshit, the only, uh, Job is right to complain. His suffering has no meaning, and then you know the story. Then finally, Job asks God, but then why did you do this? And then, I mean, all the meaningless suffering you imposed on me. And then comes that crazy speech where God says, oh, were you there when I did all those monsters, blah, blah, monsters, when I created all the strange things? And again, this is usually read as, uh, as a assertion of God's arrogance. Like, who are you, stupid, limited men, to ask me questions? You don't get it. I move at a totally different, higher level. But you know the story. I repeated it here. I follow here. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who reads in a crazy way this. He says that this God statement has to be read along the lines of, you complain, but look around. It's not only you. I screwed it up. The whole universe is like that. It's crazy and so on. And again, intelligent Christians, the, uh, Christian theologists know that uh, this, uh, that, uh, that Christ is the ultimate joke. The death of Christ means precisely the ultimate fiasco of God. Like, it's, the message of the death of Christ is the death of this good God who you think is above us, and so on, and so on. Uh, so, uh, okay, let's, what I want to say is that uh, uh, this is what I want to do tomorrow, to go into the problem of theology in the sense of what can, why a materialist have to, why do we, even if we are materialists, why do we have to go through theological experience even to be really effectively materialists? But that's for tomorrow. Today, let me, after this crazy introduction. Uh, okay, another point, I cannot resist this introduction. I don't have time to talk this time about politics, but President Obama used a, word, used a term recently in one of the interviews which shocked me because of the associations that it generates. He gave some, I would say, two weeks ago, a very strange interview where he was asked about why United States intervening now in Syria and so on. And his point was not that United States are imposing themselves as universal global policemen, but that simply that's how things are. The, the world, other countries are addressing United States as that. And he said, when there is an earthquake there, when there is 
a tsunami in Philippines and so on. You know, uh, maybe you read it on uh, that fragment. It was like they don't call Moscow or Beijing, they call Washington. You know, we are those who are addressed, and that's how the world, uh, and he uses the verb, that's how we roll. Now, my immediate association was, you know, that United 93 problem when uh, those passengers in the kidnapped plane heroically, I must admit it, uh, attacked the kidnappers. You know what were, they're just, this is recorded. The last words was one of the, them said, let's roll, you know. Okay, that's how they roll and they roll in this sense also. Because I, I really think, and I am, I had a conversation, I report to you with my, and this time I will not criticize him in any way, recently, with Alain Badiou, and he developed something which really did strike me. You know, it's almost fashionable today to say we are approaching a new world war. But I think that maybe we are. You know, in what sense? Uh, I see this statement by Obama as a very tragic one. Because uh, effectively, we are already in a multi-centric world. And United States, for them to cling to this role of universal policemen, it means that although they think they are asserting still their preeminence, they are more and more doing the dirty job for others. You know this, for example, do you know this latest scandal when Obama wrote a relatively friendly letter to Khamenei of Iran offering them cooperation, Iran arrogantly rejected it. But nonetheless, Iran is well aware that United States are basically by fighting ISIS, helping Iran to maintain its hegemony over Iraq and so on and so on. Why? Because I think, here I agree with you, his idea was that this new tensions, this is no longer cold war in the sense of different world views. We are effectively, unfortunately, approaching vaguely. I know it's a simplistic comparison, but nonetheless, the, the situation towards the end of the 19th century. We have one predominant power, which is losing its grip on it. At that point, it was you, I mean, the British Empire. Now it's the United States. We have other countries who want to, who want their part of it, uh, at that point, it was literal colonization. Today, it's economic influence, Russia, China, and so on. And then we have colonial struggles. At that point, it was Balkan, Bosnia, now maybe Arab countries or whatever. So I really think that it's uh, potentially an extremely dangerous situation. Even if I don't believe, maybe I'm too optimistic, even an all-out atomic war. But many things can happen, I claim. Because I agree with you that it's really, and people say colonialism is over. No, it's not economic colonialism, sphere of influence. It's really exactly the same problem uh, to carve out spheres of economic influence and so on and so on. Uh, and... Uh, and again, now you will say, but we are all aware of it. 
And this is what makes me afraid. It was, if you know a little bit of history, the last decades before World War I, it was exactly the same. And it's a nice example of what my other friend, whom I mentioned, Dupuy, is writing a lot uh, about this, how we know it, but we don't really believe it. I think that although we hear everywhere these warnings, you know, uh, and you always attribute them to others, that's typical, how the West is saying, my God, what Putin is doing, he's pushing us towards a new Cold War, maybe a new World War. My God, three days ago, I read, it was reported, Putin gave an interview when he said exactly the same thing, but just turned it around. We want peace, but the West is pushing towards, you know, always the other is guilty. But what I want to say is that this is the danger I see. You see, now all this warning against World War, it's strictly based on this logic. We, we know it, but we don't believe it. We think that, I think there is some subtle superstitious game at work in it, as if if we talk a lot about it, maybe it will not happen. You know, fuck it, it will happen, it can happen. It was exactly the same again with the First World War. You know, my God, this is the basic Leninist experience. You know, the, sto the story of how repeatedly in the Second International Social Democratic, at every meeting they had, they solemnly sweared, we will not, they saw the war coming, we will not vote for war credits, we will not do it. And as you probably know, the moment the war did erupt, all social democratic parties everywhere, with two notable exceptions, uh, uh, Serb social democrats and Bolsheviks, they all immediately voted for war credits. So why am I mentioning this? Because Dupuy uh, describes very nice this attitude towards a catastrophe of how you see, and he claims today with ecological catastrophe, with new war threats, it's exactly the same. We see it coming, but we don't really take it seriously, which is why we are playing these stupid games, even with ecology. You know, Dupuy is right. Of course, we should do this. We should make estimates, like how much in global warming temperature will go up. But we should never forget that all this scientific bullshit covers up superstitions. Like, you know, when they say more than two degrees Celsius, if it raises up global warming temperature, it's a catastrophe. But this is an imaginary, you know, this is an arbitrary number. Maybe the catastrophe will be here if it raises only 1%. Maybe it can raise 5%, nothing will happen. I mean, we are not, uh, what I want to say is that all these notions of the threshold, you know, how much can we still pollute, how much, uh, it's not that I'm more pessimist. I'm just saying that we really don't know. That all this rational play with it's such a possibility so we can afford to risk so much and so on. Well, I'm saying that this is bullshit. I mean, it's uh, not bullshit. We have to do it. But basically, we are playing games. These numbers don't really mean. It's not that, okay, over two degrees Celsius is a catastrophe, so let's keep it to 1.9 and everything will be okay, we are safe. What I want to say, then Dupuy goes on and says that the mystery is not only how we play this game of 
it can happen. Uh, we know it can happen, but we don't believe it, that it really can happen. But how, once it does happen, after the first shock, it immediately gets naturalized. It becomes a new way of life. And I can tell you this from my own, not my, but of my friends, painful experience in Sarajevo. Even when the siege began in, when was it, 91, 92, I think, of Sarajevo, I had friends there. Nobody, first nobody thought it can happen. Although all the signs were there. Like I remember one Sarajevo journal, even published through some guy in the headquarters of Yugoslav army who was shocked when he saw the documents, gave them to a Sarajevo newspaper, the exact blueprint plans for where to put guns of Yugoslav army on the hills around Sarajevo. Everything was known, but people didn't believe it can really happen. And I'm not here playing, to be very clear, any anti-Serb game. You remember how I mentioned before the honor of Serb uh, social democracy, I, which was the uh, only one, uh, together with Bolsheviks, voting against war credit. So that's not my point. My point is just this logic of how all the signs were there, but nobody was ready to take them seriously, even when Conflict began. I know I had some friends there with small children who told me, listen, this can last maximum two weeks. It was very fashionable for, of course, families who were able to afford it. Too quickly, because at the beginning the situation was confused, it was still able to leave Sarajevo with a the car. They simply sent their children to the Dalmatian coast, to Croatia, like, stay there for two weeks and then come back. Nobody even dreamed that it uh, will last three, four years, so how much it did. But here is the point made by Dupuy. Immediately afterwards, once the siege were here, was there, it became a way of life. It was immediately naturalized. People got used to it. They even, you know how you know that they got used to it? Because jokes started to circulate uh, making fun of all the, like, uh, even with the most painful situations, for example, jokes about uh, how you have to dodge to avoid snipers and so on and all that, uh, uh, all that. And even some vulgar jokes, like I always like, uh, it works only in Serbo-Croat, where skinuo, on me skinuo, it means he took off my clothes, but it also can mean somebody shot me, like skinu or a sniper. It means a sniper hit me, no? And the joke is that a guy goes to work in Sarajevo under siege, comes home and sees his wife naked with another man in the bed and she says, skinu or a sniper, you know, like skinu or the same word, like uh, took off my clothes or shot at me and so on. Uh, so. Uh, uh, this, is, this is where I am a pessimist. Uh, I'm a pessimist not in the sense horrible things will happen, but how quickly we will get used to them. Because again, that's why I'm almost becoming a, <coughs> a paranoiac pessimist. You see what it already happened with torture. We 
silently accepted it as a, and I was so shocked even now in Portland, not Dupuy, he is a graduate here, but how, how many even so-called progressive academics all of a sudden said, but let's be realist, sometimes you have to torture and so on and so on. I'm not taking a, even a position here. I'm just stating how some, something which 10, 20 years ago was simply unthinkable, you know, to say let's torture or even, that's my point, I already made it here, or even to say let's debate it. It would have been the same obscenity as to say, let's debate if rape is admissible or not. You know, and then you can have arguments for and against and so on. But there is something admitted obscene in this. You precisely shouldn't even debate this. I think, I already used this phrase here and I like it to repeat it. I think that, that uh, the sign of progress is more dogmatism in this sense. More dogmatism in the sense that a sign of ethical progress is that some things, some prohibitions, simply should become something that you don't debate. We shouldn't debate, oh, but are there exceptional cases? And then you can go into this totally ridiculous scenario. You know, what if a woman is really an easy woman? And what if the guy is desperate? He was doing great thing. Can he rape her a little bit and so on? All those stupidities. Uh, no, this has to become unacceptable. And here I claim it's better to be hypocritical than realist. Again, I repeat my old point to provoke you if you want to debate later, which I made here also years ago already. Uh, uh, I can imagine torturing someone, vaguely. I'm not sure. Okay, I will be honest and put it in a different way. What I can, ima I can imagine a situation in which I cannot guarantee to you that I will not torture. For example, this ridiculous, cheap melodrama stuff. I have a nice daughter, six, seven years old. Some evil pedophiles got her. I got in my hands, I mean, I arrested him, uh, one of them. I know absolutely that he knows where my daughter is. It's ridiculous, I know. But I cannot guarantee you that I would not torture him to tell me where my daughter is. It's ridiculous, I know, but what I want to tell you is that nonetheless, I want torture to be prohibited. Because even if we realistically accept it, that sometimes out of pure despair you do it, you should be aware, and that's the whole distinction between, here I'm quite naive, between civilization and barbarism, you should be fully aware that you are doing something terrible, ultimately inadmissible. The horror is not if we are doing it. I'm a realist. I know all governments are doing it. The horror is when you normalize it. You know, this is why I, once he attacked me back in New York Times, I got in conflict with that guy, Alan Dershowitz, who elaborated this notion of state-regulated torture and even said that then, all prisons should have doctors where, let's say, 
let's say any, I don't want to point at any of you, then I will be accused. You should be tortured and then doctor comes and examines you and decides how much torture will not hurt you. And I found this, I find this obscene. I think if you torture, I'm not saying you should, but if you, it should at least be some totally desperate act. You know, the moment, you, uh, you, and again, at this level, I think, that's the problem with me. This, uh, I think that the most perverse effect would have been an open debate about torture where opponents of torture would win. Because even if they win and we reasonably establish there should be no torture, in a deeper sense, we've already lost because we accepted it as a topic of the debate and we shouldn't. We should be dogmatic here. So, okay, I just wanted to, maybe I will write something again, I don't know, uh, because so many, you know, once after a long time, I agreed with the cover of Time magazine there was an issue about two months ago on gay homosexuality, gay issues, and they made an observation which is true and worries me very much of how in the, let's call it naively liberal part of the world, Western, more and more gay, gay rights, but how this is accompanied by the opposite, how in many, not only third world countries, it's more and more anti-gay. You know, this division is dangerous. And things are happening. Like, I have friends in Singapore who told me, you know what is going on now? Now, okay, now, now. In the last month in Singapore, they are silently burning books from public libraries. No censorship at books which... Uh, paint in a positive way uh, uh, lesbian, uh, lesbianism or, or, or abortion or divorce, whatever. The excuse is we are not prohibiting anything. We just try to keep calm, not to arouse, annoy people. You know, it's done in a very soft, gentle way, but slowly, slowly they are, do they are doing it. So uh, what I see is this extremes, on the other hand, in the politically correct sphere, crazy things are happening. Like, no, I wasn't here recently. I didn't yet use at least this one. I didn't. Do you know it's not a joke? It was reported in the media. I didn't believe it. I thought it's some joke, so I called my friends to Australia. They confirmed it to me. Was it also, maybe there was some note in your newspaper, uh, about two months ago, Perth, you know Perth, West Australian city. They have an opera. That opera, it's not a joke. Prohibited staging of Carmen Bizet. No, not because of sex, Carmen. Because the first act takes place in a cigarette factory. And they claim this can be read as a propaganda for smoking. So they permanently withdraw the opera from... I found this so ridiculous, and I don't smoke. Ridiculous because even if you take it at this own level, I mean, that place is not portrayed the factory as an attractive place, you know? It doesn't work at all. But uh, I really think that we are approaching dangerous times, if you ask me. Maybe even more than the Cold War. And here I 
return to my friend Dupuy, who de deployed in a wonderful way the logic of uh, how that med mutually assured destruction, how wonderfully it worked, and he spontaneously, we agreed, he uh, rediscovered there the Lacanian notion of object small a. He said he has this in his books. How mutually assured destruction, you know what it was. It was like no atomic war because in, if one side attacks, then the other side will for sure be able to strike back and we are all dead. So precisely because both sides have full atomic capacities to destroy the other, the opposite side. So this very equilibrium is guarantees that there will be no war. But, but he says something wonderful. He says, no, if the situation were to be clear like that, it would be still rational to hit. Why? Let's say I am one side, you are the other side. I would be tempted to bomb you because I would reason like this. I bomb you and I almost destroy you. And then you would be in a tough position. Your choice would have been, should I strike back? But that probably would have meant the end of civilization. Or do I not strike back? and have the sympathy of the entire world, you know, I'm the victim and, okay, my country has great loss, suffered great losses, but at least I saved the human race. And it's quite rational to think that most of the world leaders would have probably chosen, except some crazy American militarists. No, I'm serious here. I'm sorry if I make another detour, but these are serious things. You know, I have no illusions about Soviet Union and so on. But something did strike me. I've written about this in one of my earlier books deeply. I read, now that they made them available, it's very instructive to read secret notes. Now they, some of them were rendered public about what happened within in the American headquarters, Army, President Kennedy, and Khrushchev's Soviet Army headquarters uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, no? I mean, not that I was turned pro-Soviet, but uh, what did strike me is that the American problem was almost exclusively who will blink the first, you know? Let's just remain tough and so on. Let's not lose nerves. Well, it's quite touching, with all the Stalinist terror and so on. Khrushchev and his, all those disgusting, fat, old Politburo guys, their problem was, my God, we are playing with the fate of humanity. Do we have the right to do this? And so on and so on. The Soviet side was the only one where the debates were touched this uh, fundamental issue. Even, uh, I think... They celebrated him now, again. You know that, and it looks, you never know, that it is a true story. Namely that he's called Archipo, or what? That one Soviet submarine commander comes closest to saving the world. Because, you know, an, a Soviet submarine was there around Cuba and an American military boat above was doing some aggressive move towards it, and there already was a command to 
rocket league, which would have triggered at least a mega war. And, you know, the Soviets, as all of them, or Americans also, you don't just press the button. You have all these rules that all three in a submarine, all the three commander, two main officers have to agree, and then each of them has to put in his own code, and two agreed, one didn't. He, as we put it bombastically, uh, he saved the world. But again, it's typical, it was the Soviet one. So what I'm saying is how complex the situation is. I'm absolutely shocked, Soviet Union terror and so on. But you see how a certain, if you want, level of humanity surprisingly survived there, even at the top of the most corrupted uh, nomenclatura and so on and so on, you know. So again, okay, surprise, surprise, now I will really stop this introduction. But I just wanted to, 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 to warn you. I really think, again, that we are, you know, another sign that we are approaching dangerous times is don't take me for a fool. I am not an idiot who thinks, you know, like uh, uh, United States themselves organized 9-11, and then you know all the stuff, you know, that, that and all the Jews were informed uh, the previous day not to show up there. No, I'm not a total paranoiac, but I don't know what to tell you, but with ISIS now, the ISIS, you know, that uh, state, whatever, uh, I have some marginal doubts what is going on there. First, and the source here are not some anti-Semites, are my Israeli friends, who are not even very pro-Palestinians. They sent me a message telling me, you know, when ISIS occupied one of the cities there in Iraq or what? They did their brutal things, the usual ones, killing them, enslaving women, and they got some 10 Israelis and then they immediately set them free. Then second thing, you can check it on uh, the web. When that guy, Burgudi, whatever, fuck him, the, the boss of ISIS, was asked at, uh, uh, what to do, how to, what to do in Gaza. This was a month ago when Gaza was still, uh, you know what he said? He said, forget Israel, this will come at the end. Now the main point is to fight our enemies within our world it's to destroy Hamas. I mean, on the and also you should see how ISIS perf served a perfect function to allow the Western military establishment to reinvent itself. You know, to new investments, blah, 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 all that. I mean, things are so unclear there. You can see in such a perfect way, the rise of ISIS plays a certain role. First, it fits perfectly. I'm not, I'm not blaming them here. But uh, I understand them strategically for the Israelis. What better thing there is than Arabs fighting each other like crazy and so on, you know? It feeds them. It, it feeds uh, certain Africa. It feeds the military establishment and so on and so on. Especially those... Uh, you remember how, did you see how Netanyahu, uh, how Netanyahu reacted to ISIS? 
His message is not pro-ISIS, but something like, don't take ISIS too seriously, the big enemy is still Iran, and so on. You know, it's all, like, uh, there is something really obscure. What you, I'm not ready, able to make clear uh, lines of separation. Okay, many leftists attacked me for uh, the beginning, for taking pro-Ukrainian side uh, in that first conflict. My answer is, of course, I'm well aware, I have connections there of all the neo-Nazis and so on in Ukraine. But you know what's the problem? It's hypocritical to say, okay, Russians have a point here. Because what about all the neo-fascists in Russia, who are not even marginalized, but fully part of the Putin camp. I mean, it's, uh, and uh, the key guy is here, I almost like him, that Orban, the Hungarian government right wing, they went so far now, they pursued that path. Orban is now openly taking sides with Putin and China, claiming that, uh, you know, Hungarians, this is not for us, Western democracy, liberalism is a danger, and so on and so on. So uh, what's the point here? My point is that what I'm always repeating, that effectively a new form of global capitalism is emerging where economic global capitalism fits, functions perfectly with uh, narrow, violent nationalism. In India, it's the same. How do you call that guy? Modi or whatever. Yeah, within, okay, he's a Hinduist, nationalist. But at the same time, he's much more than before a radical global capitalist. He said openly, I was shocked, shocked at that he openly said it, that how he sees India change in the fact that China is getting a little bit too overdeveloped and will have to raise the price of their uh, working force. So it's a change here for India, all those cheap assembly stores, millions of underpaid workers. That, that, so you see, you see the paradox. Ruthless global capitalism and violent ethnic fundamentalism. No contradiction here. They function together in a perfect way. Okay, after all this, my God, maybe, maybe, what do you think? It's time that we begin. Let's do it. <laughs> According to Hegel, I'm talking about Hegel, aesthetics. Hegel's diagnosis, you all know this, with the rise of modernity, and here, by modernity, I mean socioeconomic modernity, bourgeois society, post-medieval society, a quote from Hegel, the form of art has ceased to be the supreme need of the spirit. You know that uh, when it really matters, the ultimate truth about our predicament, it's no longer in art that it is articulated. Now Hegel was well aware that technically even a more perfect art than ever can be created in our times. We enjoy it immensely, whatever you want, but as Hegel puts it nicely, we bow the knee no longer. It's not no longer that absolute respect. And I think if you ask me that Hegel was right 
more than he thought. Because later in the 19th century, when with this new technological scientific civilization, and it's not science in Hegel's sense, but the positivist science, technology, and so on, this became, what's our attitude towards art today? We enjoy it, we even say it's wisdom, it cal you know, even when we show respect for it, here Hegel was right, it's already a patronizing respect. Like, the most disgusting slight symptom of this that I really like is many cognitivists like to boast discreetly that uh, they are not just stupid scientists, they really appreciate art, but the way they do it is so terribly patronizing. For example, uh, uh, Damasio. Maybe I'll use this example here. Uh, uh, I say this so much, it's so humiliating and patronizing. Uh, there is, I'm sorry, it's not racism, it's just senility. There is a great uh, Portuguese uh, piano pianist, a lady, Maria something. Okay, she is great and famous. And, sorry? Okay, whatever. And uh, Damasio, in his, one of his books about how our brain work, he wants to make a point of how hearing functions, no? And instead of simply making the point, she cannot resist the temptation of boasting. Like, yesterday, Maria, blah, blah, visited us, and she played the piece by Beethoven, and I enjoyed it so much. But then what happened when the sound, you know, like, it's all about how your ears function, but she had to add this ornament to boast. It, uh, that's their attitude. They can sincerely praise it art, religious meditation, like there are scientists today who love, as you probably know, maybe even better than me, Buddhist meditation, because they prove scientifically that it really works and so on, but it's, but it's, but it's deprived of its substance. It's no longer what authentic art or religion was to be, uh, what pathetically we should call a, a contact with the absolute. I mean, we can also understand this in a non-idealist way. It simply means it really matters that art can, is not just an, uh, a kind of a, 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 a aesthetic supplement or something that calms you down, that makes you function better. It's not a subjective experience. In art, you formulate, you experience what it really matters the truth of your life, as it were. In this sense, absolute. Uh, uh, yes, another example of this, although he is more pleasant than Damasio, would be uh, Oliver Sacks. You know, his musicology, he obviously likes art and all this. But again, it's not a medium of truth, art. Uh, now, and again, I think that, so Hegel was simply in this sense right. We today, we believe in science. We look for the ultimate answers there. And I claim that this is implicitly admitted not only by artists, but even by many religious people. If you look at it closely, when they try to find a space for religion also, what depresses me is how they do it. 
it's already in this, let's call it therapeutic way. Art, uh, science is called, cannot satisfy you to retain your balance, the meaning of life. You need a deeper mystical experience, blah, blah. But this is horrible. They themselves are already treating religion implicitly as another way to facilitate your ego trip, you know. My God, if you're seriously religious, it's not about how I feel. It's about God. It's about the truth of it. This is why, were you here at that uh, uh, conference? No, it was in another room. The theology the, the, with Rowan Williams and so on. Were some of you there that the actuality of theological political? There was a terrifying moment there. I'm sorry if I repeat myself. Where at the beginning, I don't know who, three of them were up on the podium, and I asked them a simple question. We are at a theological-political conference. You talk about God. How do you mean it? It's just a metaphor. It's just how religion maybe can serve our progressive struggle. Or do you really believe it? Where do you stand? It was incredible. They basically behaved as if I asked them in what position did you fuck yesterday evening or what. <laughs> as if, you know, it was literally as if I asked them some dirty private secret, you know, and how can you? I remember my good friend uh, Eric Sentner, he was, yes, the last one to answer. He said, I'm here as a literary analyst. I, I just analyzed the text there. It has that, I mean... Uh, and uh, to avoid a misunderstanding, I'm an atheist. But here, I had a sympathy with my friend, uh, we don't agree, don't be afraid, John Milbank, who was also shocked later we talked, about how, my God, you know, and this is so sad, this is where religion is dead today, I claim. That you have two types, you have either, this is predominant form of religion, there are very few who are still doing serious theology. Either you have this cheap preaching, you know, popular, popularizing it, which is really a big ego trip, or you have science. Science in the sense of, you know, all those boring books which are so irrelevant. They are worse than the most vulgar atheism. Those, what was the real, you know, that I read it with pleasure, but fuck it, that uh, Aslan Zilot, you know. Like, you know, these endless stories, they always make the same point. Uh, 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 Paul is to blame for everything. Jesus was not dead. The original Jesus was some, I don't know, good revolutionary, whatever. This historical point, but so what's the point? Where do you, you, you see what I mean? The moment you approach it like this, it's already a positivist problem. The question, but where do you stand? with regard to it. Of course, Aslan finishes his book with this, in this way. He says, uh, nonetheless, Jesus deserves respect. He was a great man. Fuck it. Was he God or not? What do I care if he, if he was a great man? Uh, I mean, uh, you see, these are the signs of... This is why I wrote in one of my early books. Do you remember? You're probably most of you too young. When was this? 90s or when, I totally get confused, when Taliban were in power in Afghanistan, you remember they shot those Bamiyan gigantic Buddha statues. In a way, they showed more respect for Buddhism because they took it as an actual 
religious threat. It was a sacred war. In a way, they showed more respect to religion than we who were outraged by what they did. Because our outrage was not, oh my God, they are ruining God. No, it was, what a great monument to the culture of humanity. The moment you talk about religion in this way, it's over. Religion is dead. Now, be careful. I'm not saying we should return to religion, to authenticity of the sacred. I not only think that, that we cannot, I think that when we do, it's usually something fundamentally terrible and so on. So I developed this in, uh, I think it's my this, I call my Norman Bates book. You know why? Absolute recoil. Because, you know, they did the way Verso did it. And this time I liked in the cover. It's as if this, I'm Norman Bates and enter the shower. You know how it's the cover, the letter scarfed by, no, <laughs> I'm Norman Bates now, not that identity. But what I'm saying is that, uh, you see, I just wanted to improvise here in what sense Hegel was right. Religion no longer has this substantial truth. Which is why I claim all these attempts to, as they call it, re-enchant the world, to return magic to the world. So that, to paraphrase Hegel, we would be able to, to bend the knee again. Show humility in front of the greatness of art, of nature, whatever. They are, they are a fake. They are an aesthetic uh, game, I claim. So, in this sense, Hegel was right. How, then, are we to advocate uh, against Hegel and his diagnostic of the end of art, but in the spirit of Hegel, the continuing relevance of art. Hegel was right, but nonetheless, in what sense was Hegel right? That's what I want briefly to develop. In what sense, precisely, remaining within Hegel's horizon, we can fight against Hegel with Hegel himself? Where was Hegel to short. Uh, here I will give you now some quotes from this Robert Pippin's book, After the Beautiful, where he says that uh, uh, Hegel had a double limitation. Now, I will try to prove later why still we can remain Hegelians and criticize Hegel through Hegel himself. Here, Pippin is right. These are simple statements, but I think they are correct. First, uh, there was a blind spot in Hegel's treatment of modernity. Uh, you know Hegel's vision at the end of his uh, 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 philosophy of right, that he speaks about the modern post-revolutionary, revolution is French revolution, so-called prosaic world. Big tragedies are no longer possible. For Hegel, no? There are, of course, tragedies, earthquake, pathologies, but they are individual contingencies. For Hegel, we live in a rational world. We have fights. I am jealous. I can kill you, whatever. But these are 
private accidents, we no longer have big historical struggles. The last big epochal struggle was the struggle described by Hegel, French Revolution, modernity against the remainders of the more traditional world. But for Hegel in a post-revolutionary world, we no longer have these fights. This world is basically reconciled with itself. Here, since probably I talk too much and I will not have time to, my God, how time is running, to return to it, I will just give you an idea. Towards the end of his lectures of aesthetics, Hegel does ask a question. What kind of art can we still imagine in this world in which art no longer has this substantial, no, we know for Hegel, really big art, uh, stages, renders the big historical conflict, or the big antagonism of an epoch. Antigone, whatever, struggle, modernity, tradition. Their art must recapture a big historical tension. Today, we know for Hegel, we no longer have such tensions. So Hegel gives a precise answer in his aesthetics. He uh, says that the topic of the new art is something he called with a strange word, of course I know what it means, but strange is what he means by it, humanus, which he simply means all the ridiculous particularities of our ordinary lives our stupid misunderstandings, uh, struggles, small personal tragedies, comic confusions, all this, what we say, ordinary life. It has no big historical relevance, but this is what our ordinary, non-historical, prosaic life is about. And Hegel says, since it's not a great historical tragedy, it's a comedy. Not comedy necessarily in the sense that you laugh, but comedy in the sense that uh, it's from the standpoint of the absolute irrelevant. You know, like, uh, you can have there a madman, a serial killer, blah, blah. Now, if you want to make, this would be the Hegelian standpoint, an authentic tragedy out of it, you would have somehow to historically mediate serial killing, you know, to show how, I don't know, how a serial killer somehow brings out in a, of course, crazily radicalized version, some fundamental attitude which is immanent to bourgeois subjectivity, let us say. I'm not claiming this totally seriously, but uh, it must be something like this to make it relevant. If a serial killer is just a private pathology, even if he does all the horrors that he does, these are just ridiculous idiosyncrasies. It doesn't have relevance. So that's Hegel's view, that uh, we live in a prosaic world. Conflicts are just these ridiculous particular idiosyncrasies. And it's a comedy, again, because it does not reflect, render, express an absolute historical tension. Uh, I, it came to me, I wonder if you would agree, that I claim only today we found 
a form of art, Hegel was ahead of his time, which perfectly fits what Hegel was after, today's sitcoms. Are they not exactly like this? Think about, uh, uh, think about I don't know, Seinfeld or all of this. Even not just the stupid comedies with Kent laughter, but these endless sitcoms where you know the conflicts are irrelevant, small jealousies, troubles at your job, love quarrels, and so on, with a comical flair, even from time to time tragic, but nothing world historical happens. So that would be a nice thesis to develop that. Hegel was the first, without knowing, theorist of Seinfeld or all these sitcoms and so on. Uh, but, uh, and this is why, incidentally, I think that they are a perfect form of ideology today, these sitcoms. Their message is precisely this. We live in a reconciled world. All that happens, all that happens within our world, there is always an evil other, Muslim or whatever, outside. All that happens is our this idiosyncratic conflict. Again, there can be horrible. Someone can kidnap you and slowly torture you to death, whatever. But you see my point. It doesn't have historical relevance. Was Hegel right or not? Unfortunately, not, I claim. In what sense? Again, back to Pippin. Pippin claimed that Hegel, I quote, there is Hegel's quote, failure to anticipate the dissatisfactions that his prosaic world would generate, or Hegel's failure to appreciate that there might be a basic form of disunity or alienation that his project could not account for, for which there was no overcoming yet on the horizon. Uh, so this is the first point, that uh, in other words, and Pippin is here almost a Marxist, Although Hegel wrote about excessive wealth and all that, how bourgeois society necessarily generates excessive wealth, and on the other hand, those people uh, rebel, those excluded, and so on. But this is marginalized. Hegel did not admit that in the prosaic modern world that he describes as our contemporary world, that there can be some fundamental, however you call it, dissatisfaction, precisely in the Hegelian sense of obstacles to actualize your human dignity, equality, recognition, potentials. And as Pippin points it out, when, of course, Hegel has all this point about uh, how the progress of modern societies, universal freedom, it's to overcome master-servant relations. But for him, the only relations of social antagonism and hierarchy that Hegel was able to perceive, Hegel was not yet fully a thinker of capitalism, where this precisely pre-modern hierarchic uh, relations of domination. What Hegel couldn't imagine is precisely what Marx did, a society which is legally, fully, uh, uh, egalitarian, we are all the same, blah, blah, we have all the freedoms, but nonetheless, there is class antagonism. So that's what Hegel wasn't able to see. And uh, uh, again, 
At the same time, there is another limit of Hegel. His notion, Hegel's notion of art, remains the, let's call it, naive, realistic notion. To cut a long story short, for Hegel, art is still a realist staging of something, uh, 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 mimetic representation or subjective expression. The notion of modern art was unthinkable for Hegel. So-called abstract art. Uh, Hegel knew well. Hegel did, in a way, foretold, foretell, sorry, uh, uh, so-called conceptual art. Because Hegel says that in our age, I quote Hegel, art invites us to intellectual consideration. By this, he meant that art lost its innocence, that intellectual consideration is part of it. But I think Hegel wasn't able to go to the end here and in imagine a form of art which remains authentic art, although it's problematic this today, but nonetheless, as art in includes explicitly the moment of reflexivity, intellectual consideration, and so on and so on. And it's true, with modernism proper, art did lose its innocence, you know. I mean, it's ridiculous today to claim, you know, romantics were the last to be able to say, when I write or paint, I don't know what's happening. Some higher force is talking, uh, creating through me, blah, blah, blah. You are a fake. But uh, where was Hegel right? Okay, also, what Hegel, this would have been unthinkable for him, did not imagine is that the other part of this reflexivization of art, and this is typical for modernism, where, you know, practically every modernist at the same time, had some kind of theory about what he is doing. And even if in his practice he violated his theory, nonetheless, this violation implied the theory, or as some of my friends claimed, art historians, they are writing a book, some my Slovene friends, one can even say that with some modernist orientations, like fut some futurism and so on, their manifestos, theoretical, are the only interesting part, you know. Who cares about the bullshit they were doing? Their manifesto is, even in a way, the only work of art that they did. In what sense? In the sense that what Hegel didn't foresee is that this reflexivization of art also implies the opposite, that thinking, philosophy itself starts to imitate art with Nietzsche and so on. Philosophy itself becomes an aesthetic of writing and so on and so on. But where was Hegel right here? Isn't there a problem with conceptual art, which is the ultimate example of art which includes reflexivity, that as a rule, usually, it has the structure of what we call hapax, only one example. You know what I mean? To put it very simply, for someone like Duchamp, Okay, you have that, uh, that uh, pissoir, how do you call it in English, urinary, whatever, yeah. Okay, you put it there and fuck you, you made your point. You know what you mean? Then you can, you know, once you did, okay, it's over. 
you know. You cannot the next time put on, uh, uh, I don't know, put on, I don't know, some cooking utensil. Next time you put on a pillow or whatever. Once you make your point, it's the same with Malevich, whom I really appreciate. Okay, he did his black square on white surface. So, fuck off. Yes, you made your point. You know what I mean? The problem is how you go on. And this is, for me, the big problem. Although, of course, with Duchamp, you can complicate things. And here, I always like to annoy my friends, you know. Maybe you know the story. I used it in some of my books. Uh, imagine that you are at an exhibition and you have that stupid pissoir or what, you know? Uh, then, uh, and they explain to you, yeah, well, you know, this is not really a pissoir, this is up there, a work of art, you know, like, put into the, co the point is obvious that it's the position, place that makes a work of art, a work of art, not its ability. Now, imagine a vulgar guy like me walking up there and urinating into it. Now an idiot would tell me, idiot, you totally missed the point. This is not a real urinoir, it's a piece of art. Eh, fuck you, I have an answer. <laughs> but I also became in this way part of that uh, world of art, you know. Why shouldn't then also my urinating be? World of art, uh, work of art, and so on and so on. So, uh, again, there is a deadlock here, and what I nonetheless appreciate so much in all really great modern artists is that they were able to move, as it were, beyond hapax. You know, uh, Malevich didn't just go on doing these stupid squares, although for some time he was. I think he even did something like white square on white background or whatever. Okay, but once he did this, and... It's totally wrong to see his modest return to more realist painting as they usually dismiss it as a compromise with Stalinist realism. No, it's there still. You know this famous late self-portrait from early 30s, I think, close to his death of Malevich, where you see him and he makes this gesture with hands, square, like the square is still here, you know. The, the big test is... Uh, how to return to even more apparently traditional art, but in such a way that it's not just a regressive return, that the outcome is there. Okay. Uh, uh, now, one thing that, back to Pippin, one thing that Pippin doesn't do, and I was very surprised, and here I will at least do what I wanted to do, I will show you some of those, the best known. I will not do anything great. Uh, paintings by Manet, to make the simple point of art and modernity. Uh, 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 we have these two limitations of Hegel. On the one hand, we have a fundamental dissatisfaction with modernity, which is not just individual idiosyncrasy. Like, there is something structurally wrong with our world. There is a fundamental alienation, displacement, whatever. And on the other hand, art moved to an abstract level in the sense of that it doesn't simply rely on a reality out there that you depict, render inner or outer reality, but in a way 
reflexively, the forum itself becomes problematic. Uh, now I will improvise a little bit so that uh, from the later part, namely, uh, uh, what I find so weird with Pippin is that he doesn't ask the obvious question. How are these two, and this is for me the truly historical materialist question. We have, again, I repeat it, two limitations. On the one hand, art, sorry, on the one hand, Hegel didn't see the dissatisfaction antagonism in modern society, which for Hegel was self-reconciled society at ease with itself, so disturbances are just local idiosyncrasies. On the other hand, Hegel was not able to imagine abstract art, art which doesn't just depict reality, but in a way problematizes, undermines the very coordinates of reality. The truly interesting question is, how are the two connected? That is to say, if, and that's the implicit lesson of Hegel, art is only possible in non-reconciled society, in a society where there is a fundamental tension, and where this tension cannot be fully intellectually grasped. So, you render it in art. What then happens in modernity? What kind of a tension it is that you cannot render it adequately in the traditional realist way? Why is it that, to, to put it in very naive terms, why is it that to articulate what is wrong in our world? you need to undermine the very coordinates of our sense of reality, as it were. You have to move to abstraction. You have to doubt about uh, reality itself, all that stuff, and so on and so on. Why can't you depict what is wrong with our world in standard realist way? And this is where, of course, uh, although I appreciate him, he's not such a total idiot as People, the great Hungarian Marxist, George Lukács, who, at least towards the end, remained for not socialist but critical realism. What he didn't see, nonetheless, Lukács, when he criticized Kafka for abstraction and so on, was that, like, why didn't Kafka realistically depict the alienation of our society? Why do we have to go through all that? Uh, fantastic, phantasmagoria, crazy world. Why can't you simply do a realist novel? That's the big question. And now I will make my first point how on both discounts, the two limitations of Hegel, what I find so attractive here, Pippin is convincing, is that, but I developed, is that uh, on both counts, Hegel, it's not that something new appeared, Hegel was not able to grasp it. Hegel was not Hegelian enough. We, I already written about it a lot, about capitalism. But when he speaks about market, Hegel, we all know, he did read Adam Smith, Invisible Hand, all that bullshit, but... Uh, Hegel's notion of, of, of modern market society was, 
and I use on purpose this well, he was too much of a vulgar materialist. He wasn't idealist enough. Hegel still thought market, each of us does work and simply it's coordinated contingently to the market. What Hegel was not able to imagine is capital as such, where abstraction rules directly. You know, that's the point of Marx. When Marx describes in Capital the passage from money to capital, he says, with capital, money becomes its own pseudo-autonomous subject. Money, capital is money which mediates itself with itself, circulates, and we actual people are judging. So abstraction directly rules. It's a totally Hegelian notion. And Marx consistently uses Hegelian terms. Capital is actual idealism. It's an ideal entity, the real of an ideal entity, structuring our reality. Hegel remained too much of a vulgar realist here. And, uh, sorry, materialist even. Then the same goes for, we know this. So paradoxically, again, Marx's achievement was not simply to materialize Hegel's speculation, but to show to Hegel that in the domain of political economy, he wasn't idealist enough. He wasn't able to imagine, and today it's getting even more crazy with all those speculations on futures and so on, where everything happens in some totally abstract level, and our real lives are dominated by that. We live in a totally idealist world today. The same goes for art. What, what is the big lesson, for example, of modern paintings? Just read, although I don't like him too much, uh, neither as a painter, Kandinsky, nor as a theorist, he is too much of a new ager, but something he saw clearly, that there is, he is idealist in a good Hegelian sense. You know his uh, famous text uh, concerning uh, the spiritual, about the spiritual, that guy figure, the spiritual dimension of art. His point is that uh, in standard notion of painting, what you see is an expression of some spiritual content, but mediated by what is represented there. You paint a church. Of course, even if it's done in a non-realistic way, it's through this representation that spiritual content enters. But what the basic breakthrough of Kandinsky is that uh, there is a spirit again, that it is that already visual form before representative level, as it were, already at the purely former level is spiritualized, that you can render a spiritual conflict, ethical, world historical even, at the pure level of form. Triangle, square, colors, and so on. So you see, and this, this aspect Pippin demonstrates nicely, how Hegel was not idealist enough here. He didn't see that the form itself is already spiritualized, not in any mystical sense, but in the sense that there is a certain spiritual content spiritual struggle. By spiritual, we shouldn't think about spirits, but precisely, and uh, Pippin points out this nicely, spiritual in the Hegelian sense of Geist, 
collective identity, public space of recognition that you don't you don't have to have you don't have to mediate it through representation. You see, uh, and this is where Pippin again shows nicely how if the progress of history in dialectic means that more and more spirit mediates immediate materiality, then modern art is more Hegelian idealist, abstract art, because it, as it were, lowers the level of spiritualization. It's already prior to representation. So, again, these two limitations of Hegel, uh, uh, that he didn't see the fundamental instability of the modern world. Okay, now, how do we see this? Now I will try to do a little bit of Manet, and please take this, I'm not faking here, I am, I wouldn't say bluffing, but like what I will tell you is very elementary. It's the ABC. What the connection I want to make is an obvious one, but very elementary. Because Pippin also, I hope this still works. Yes, we'll see. Wait a minute. OK, fuck it. It also cannot see it. OK, let me first show Manet uh, this. Uh, um, He's almost, let's do it, uh, okay. Why <laughs> this girl behind the bar or whatever? What is so, what is, what does strike you? As Pippin points out, two things, and it all concerns in a very Lacanian way, of course, the gays. First, you have the gays of the bar girl, which is the typical Manet gays of, let's call it, Seeing, uh, uh, looking, but some people, sorry, I'm here. People usually call it as seeing but not looking. You have this typical Manet distracted gaze, which works in a disturbing way because it is as if she is aware of you looking of her, but at the same time you are irrelevant. So you are at the same time excessively included. The picture looks at you, but nonetheless excluded. And uh, this, this location is even more clearly rendered by another feature. You see the lady's reflection in the mirror there. But it's a confusion of perspective, because if you are where you are, you cannot see it like that in the mirror. It, it is as if you, the viewer, are directly addressed, but the, you don't have a fixed point. And uh, Pippin's idea is that this, let's call it a subjective dislocation, not only of the painted girl who, again, like, okay, you can say she is just tired after a whole night work, whatever, but nonetheless, it's as if, like, uh, why am I here? It's some kind of a fundamental dislocation. And what is so nice, and I think Pippin is not aware enough, is that the ambiguity of this dislocation, on the one hand, it's the basic form of alienation. Like, she is almost in a textbook way alienated. Like, what am I doing here? But at the same time, this alienation, this alienation is freedom. 
it. You are autonomous. You cannot be identified to a certain fixed place, and so on, and so on. Okay, let's not lose time. Let's go on. His breakfast or dinner or whatever, I don't care, in the grass. Now, this is another mystery. You have, of course, especially with the naked lady here, the same uh, dislocated gaze. Then another, okay, I will not go into it because, of course, I know seeing guys, so I immediately did a primitive, not even Lacanian, but analysis. Pippin himself draws attention to the fact that the lady, who is not totally naked, washing herself in the background, he claims, and I checked with some other art historians, that this is usually uh, read as post-coital washing. Okay, so I ask you a simple question. Who fucked her? There are two men and two, you know, did the one who talks here or the guy behind there and many things can be developed by that. The other mystery is the double source of light and so on. It's the same dislocation. Let's drop that and let's go to his uh, maybe most famous painting, Olympia. You see, you have the same dislocated gaze. Uh, there are two mysteries here. One is the source of light. The big rule of classical painting was you should have it clearly indicated it's the sun or whatever, the source of light within the space of the painting. Here, it's as if we, the viewers, are the source of life. It's we, and it's even an extra strong life. Of course, this is a prostitute, a black uh, servant, bringing her flowers from some customer, maybe from us, and so on. So one point is this simple, op uh, we are directly put in, we, I, I, I felt when you look at this painting, you cannot but feel like a customer in those famous uh, Amsterdam red light district, you know, watching them. Although incidentally, the last time I was in Amsterdam, I loved the experience in red light. Now why? Because it's, in a very Hegelian way, at three, four levels, mediated experience. You have girls who are usually, I was told, Filipino girls, no longer Dutch girls, within the, that frame of the window. They are watched by prospective customers, who are usually some, uh, some, 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 some Arab-African uh, uh, immigrant workers. Both of them are watched by usually Japanese tourists taking photos of them. <laughs> and then local Dutch people are just with amu detached amusement observing the entire scene. But what I want to say is that what Pippin develops, there is another feature here in a nice way, is that although this is clearly the portrait of a prostitute with all the vulgarity, with all the signs of flesh and so on, even subtle signs of the nastiness, filth, filth and so on. It's clearly a copy, an imitation of those classical paintings of newts, like Angres did her Venus in exactly the same position. The hand covering the pubic area, and so on and so on. But what's interesting is that, then, 
you know, till Manet, it was still possible to do naked painting in a totally sublimated, however you put it, innocent way. Here, the effect is retroactive in the sense that not only do we pass from those saintly or whatever naked desexualized bodies to a clearly sexualized body, but I claim the effect is retroactive in the sense once you see this, you cannot look at the same, in the same way to all those Venus paintings and so on and so on. It's ruined. And this brings us to, again, to my friend with whom I began, Dupuy, to that problem of retroactivity. It's that, you see, this is how it works a true revolution. It's not up till now it was like this, from now on it's like that. It's when something new emerges, retroactively we lose, you know, it's not that once we see this, we cannot return to, to early modern, all those naked paintings and see them in their innocence. No, retroactively they lose their innocence. It's lost. So, uh, uh, again, the main point here, there are other points, how he plays with frame and so on, but the idea is, again, that the subjects in these paintings are, even if they are uh, commodified, like here, object, again, crucial is that dislocated gaze, and then, I'm sorry, we don't have time to go into it, Hegel is here incredible. Hegel claims that Gaze is the window to the soul. No, there you feel subjectivity. But Hegel does something... Uh, sorry, let me finish this line of thought. I claim that nonetheless... And I, this is my subjective impression. I just want to see if you will react in the same way. Uh, that nonetheless, there is some type that what Pip, that Pippin is too... Nonetheless, two idealists, he speaks a lot about abstraction as, abstraction as spiritualization of form itself, like all those early modernist abstract paintings. But uh, I claim that something more happens with modern art. It's not only that the form itself, it's not just material form gets abstracted, because this is usually what they say about Manet, that reflexively it includes references to the painting itself. How often he reproduces within the painting the form of the frame and all that, and uh, imitates the texture of the materiality of the painting. But I think there is something more going on here. Here is my, uh, sorry, here is my favorite guy. Uh, uh, Edward Munch, of course. Look, this is, you can read it as a realist painting, a melancholic idiot close to the coast, whatever. Then you have the materiality of painting, but the way I read it, <coughs> we know what these objects are supposed to be. It's water up there, up on the left side, beneath are some stones and so on. But don't you feel here, and even more, will it work? No, sorry. Yes, somehow. Okay, I'm ashamed to point. So this one is the scream, of course, and every self-respecting intellectual 
has to have some items at home. You know that you can buy them, these comical commercialized items. Like I have it, such a big one, you blow with this. Ah, this figure is a doll at home, as a plastic <laughs> doll. Then I have even a pillow with this figure on it, and then the trick is you don't know when. You lie on it, and then in the middle of the night, it starts to scream. <laughs> That's what I call respect for modern art. But what I want to say is something else. Again, realistically, we know behind it's a stream, grass, field, sky. But don't you feel a certain weight, materiality? For example, those lines in the sky or water. It's as if it functions as a kind of a stain, which is too strong. You don't experience it as the materiality of the sky. But it's also not the, ma the immediate materiality of the painting. It's very strange for me, this phenomenon of what maybe with Schelling we could call... Okay, I did it correctly. Okay, now let's go uh, briefly on here. Uh, so again, a quote from Pippin. I don't what, uh, uh, what vouches for Manet's painting is the definite birth of an individual exiled from his certainties regarding his place in the world. The viewer is commanded to position himself as an autonomous subject, lacking the possible means to identify himself or to project himself into the artwork he confronts, and so on, and so on. I said, or the gaze is directed outside the frame, addressing us viewers, but we are treated as if invisible or indifferent, occupying no important uh, presence, and so on and so on. Then, uh, uh, okay, we have that uh, Olympia staff, this brutal realization, and again, back to gaze. What Hegel develops in a in a beautiful way, is how uh, he says the eye is the organ which points, indicates the inside of a body. And Hegel is incredibly modern here. He says that the symbol of art is therefore, he evokes uh, a Greek mythological entity, a thousand eyes, Argus, a monster, you know, his, his whole body, there are eyes everywhere. And he says that the work of art is something like that, looking at us from all points, not only from the eye, but, uh, and then he uses even a stranger metaphor. He says that this thousand-eyed work of art is essentially a question an address to a responsive breast, a call to the mind and the spirit. What's so strange is that one would have expected in standard subject-object division that, you know, the, world, the work of art is the breast and we subjects are feeding. No, it's a pretty horrible metaphor. The idea is that we, the viewers, are reduced to a breast. And the gaze which emanates from the painting is sucking us. But mm, the miracle of Hegel is this one, first. And Hegel is aware, if art is fundamental, is this thousand-eyed 
monster. But this is precisely a monstrosity. I mean, uh, this is, can you imagine this monster eyes everywhere? So Hegel already has the, had this incredible insight which we can read through Lacan when he says in seminar 11 of how a work of art acquires its beauty through deposing, gentrifying the gaze. Which is why for Hegel, in a beautiful passage in his aesthetics, he claims how uh, this is why Greek art, and as you probably know, Greek art is for Hegel the art, in historical sense. Only in Greek, art was the supreme form of the expression of the absolute, of the spirit. In medieval times, it was religion. In modern time, it's science, thinking. But, and that's a beautiful point of Hegel. He claims that precisely because of this, the Greek statues have eyes but don't have a gaze. You know, it's kind of a flat. And it's in a way true, but nonetheless, Hegel sees that for this Greek art to have this effect of disubjectification, the Greek art, as it were, has to, has to, it has, the gaze has to be there, but it has to be uh, repressed forever. And even further, and then with uh, romanticism, the gaze returns, and so on and so on. A further thing that Hegel does is to, if to emphasize how all art, is, art is not simply beautiful, but its beauty is a way to cover up, to contain, to mask the horror of the gaze, this thousand eyes Argos, which is ugliness. Which is why I claim, and there is a wonderful book, I'm so sad that it's not translated into English. A pupil of Hegel called uh, Karl Rosenkranz, it translated this book from German, I think, only in French, maybe some other language, but from what I know, maybe I'm wrong, not in English. He published in 1853 a book called Aesthetic des Hesslichen, Hesslichen, Aesthetics of the Ugly, where in a very boring, systematic, Hegelian way, he develops all forms of ugliness, like this uh, ugliness in the sense of ridiculous excess, ugliness in the sense of... Uh, distortion, disfiguration, and so on, disgust, and so on. It's, it's, uh, it's an incredible, well, although it remains conceptually traditional, the guy just wants to show how uh, the beautiful needs to be mediated by the ugliness. And of course, Adorno had a whole chapter on it in his aesthetic theory, where of course he is more radical. He claims that beauty can emerge only against the background of the ugly. And of course, the big problem is here double. One is, uh, in what precise sense then is ugliness necessary? Is the background of, of the beautiful and how can we in a work of art overcome it? Uh, Rosenkranz's solution is uh, comedy. First, you begin with beauty. This beauty is distorted. Then, once you acquire a distance of, of a distance towards it and see the ugly in its 
ridiculous character, you enter the comedy. Another way would have been, and it's interesting that Hegel, neither Hegel nor Rosenkrantz follow this path, another way would have been uh, the sublime. In the sense of, you know, in Kant, you know his theory of the sublime, something monstrous, excessive, but in a negative way, it points out the beauty or the beauty, okay, it's precisely not beautiful, but the spiritual, like, what is Kant's theory of, why is, for example, wild nature sublime? Because it can be earthquake, monstrosity, and so on, but in a negative way, you become aware, of, no matter how wild nature is, it cannot shake our moral law in us, our spiritual dimension. In this negative way, it evokes it. Uh, so, it can be either ridiculous or sublime, the way to overcome ugliness. One more, and ridiculous and sublime can easily pass into one another. Isn't it that if you try to be sublime in a too brutal, direct way, it can turn ridiculous, or the other way around? Somebody can be ridiculous, but in such a touching way that it becomes sublime. You know who was a great master here? I claim, late Charlie Chaplin talking movies. It's clear example of ridiculous, this helpless old clown uh, all of a sudden turning into, uh, turning into sublime. Then, the point is this one. But if ugliness becomes really, really ugly. Uh, yeah, the first theological point here. And Adorno knew this well. You know the standard theological theory about, uh, this is the standard official Catholic position, that evil doesn't have any positivity. Evil is just the absence of goodness. Evil is privation of good. And in the same way, can we say in the same way then that Ugliness is just the privation of beauty. I claim, and that Adorno points in this way, that we, sh we should rather say the opposite. What if beauty is the privation of the ugly? You know, you take away something from the ugly, you get beauty, and I'm tempted to go to the end. What is even goodness? Good is the privation of the evil. You erase a little bit of the evil, it becomes good. But I want to make this point, and here it's incredible. The, I'm sorry, we don't have time to go into this, but namely this. Uh, uh, now we will say, okay, we have this monstrosity of the ugliness. But how can we be sure that it will be, that it will turn around into sublime or comical? What if it's simply too strong and it remains monstrous. Even Kant allows for this option. When Kant says that uh, sublime only works, a uh, monstrous phenomenon engenders sublime effect, if we are safe from a safe position, like 
storm is sublime if you observe it through, through a window, no, not if you are in the middle there, directly threatened. And then Kant does something incredible. And I'm sorry I talked so much, so fuck it with this. I will end, but we go on tomorrow. Uh, it's, uh, Kant distinguishes here colossal from the monstrous. Colossal is this, two great monstrous, which still engenders the effect of sublime. But if monstrous gets too strong, then we just get some total terror, total unpleasure. And it's incredible what Kant does here. He directly, I couldn't believe it, so maybe Lacan was not totally idiot, he directly uses the couple lust, pleasure, and enjoyment, genus. He said that when things are moderately monstrous, they can still work in the economy of pleasure and pleasure. It's a unlust, non-pleasure, which nonetheless engenders sublime pleasure, and so on. But he says, when monstrous gets too monstrous, it's not pleasure, but, my God, it's... Uh, ah, you see, Kant says, wo, in this experience of pleasure, die Lust zugleich Kultur is, where pleasure is at the same time culture. But he says uh, that uh, with when things are just monstrous, we get enjoyment, genus, destructive of culture. What bothered Kant was this? Why enjoyment, why monstrosity fascinates us? And he uses for this weird attraction, you know, something is disgusting, but you cannot stop looking at it. No sublime effect, just here enters enjoyment, genus. My God, this is Lacan, Das Ding, and so on. Uh, every, everything is here, in a way. Uh, and then, okay, we could go on from here in what way the disgusting dimension functions. Disgust, as, as we know, disgust always enters when the, the, the skin, the limit between inside and outside is violated. You probably know this example, I used it often, but let me repeat it, like make a simple experiment. Without any problem, you always swallow your saliva. No, no problem. Okay, do it. I tried it, it worked, it's disgusting, I couldn't do it. Take a glass and spit your saliva into it. And then try to drink it, I cannot. You see, the moment it's outside, it's over. Although my God, seconds before you were without any problem swallowing it. So, uh, with all that stuff, uh, disgust and so on, I would like to pursue, sorry if it was a little bit confused, but tomorrow we will go on from here, just some finishing thoughts of Hegel, that Hegel's, my thesis will be that the limitation of Hegel was that what he also, and maybe this is much more serious than what Pippin delineates. What brought us 20th century with its horrors was, uh, why does Hegel automatically think that comedy is comedy of reconciliation, no conflict? 
What we experience in 20th century is a comedy, which is, when things get so terrible that they are no longer be tragic, they get comic. Which is why, you know, my old point, like, why are all good films about Holocaust, uh, comical, comedies, and so on. Because in tragedy, you still retain a certain dignity as a sub. Tragedy means you screw me. I said, no, kill me, but I, you know, you're at certain greatness. But in, this is why Auschwitz was not a tragedy. If you say in Auschwitz, Jews were in a tragic position, it's an obscenity. You concede too much to the Nazis. The deprivation of humanity was so horrible there that the victim was not able to maintain a, a, tragic, a tragic position. Uh, this is why, as I use it quite often, you have scenes in Auschwitz which are, in a weird, obscene way, comical. Like uh, all those games, uh, formalized gestures. In a way, it's a terrifying comedy. And this, I claim, Hegel was not able to, to see. That there is also... For Hegel, evil was tragedy. Tragedy in the sense that, what's the basic feature of tragedy? Is that you think an external enemy, counterforce, is attacking you, but the tragic point is that when you see your co-responsibility, that in fighting your opponents, you are fighting yourself. You are always in a, you know, like Oedipus, you know. He discovers how he is involved in it and so on and so on. But already in this sense, Auschwitz is not a tragedy. To read Auschwitz as a tragedy would command to say the Jews who experience how when they are tortured and destroyed by the Nazis, they are really torturing themselves, it's ultimately their responsibility. No, it's precise. this is an obscenity to say this. Tragedy is, sorry, it becomes comic in this weird way, precisely when you see... Uh, when you see the total contingency of it, I'm tortured, it has no meaning, no, and so on and so on. So, uh, again, from this, this to, to give you a little bit of forelust, for pleasure of forthcoming attraction, what I will do tomorrow to begin with, before we go to theology, but it's all connected, is my friend Adam Kotzko, a very nice from Chicago, uh, he was here for the Theological Belief Conference, uh, he just finished a wonderful new book on creepiness, creepy heroes, you know, that all the TV heroes in, that we have, they are creepy. How can it be that almost the main forum of sitcom of heroes are creepy guys? And to develop all these models of ugliness, how they function and so on, and from here we will then go to the ultimate creepy guy, uh, God, and so on, you know. <laughs> So, uh, and then we will return maybe to politics a little bit. So, uh, now you have minus two minutes to ask questions, but because it's minus two minutes, you have no chance to ask questions. So, please, uh, because I really feel bad, the usual rule tomorrow, but remember, tomorrow it's at 2, 2 p.m. Don't ask me why. I am here, like... A Jew in Auschwitz, you know, tragic. I, I didn't do it. I didn't fake. But uh, uh, so again, if you want, but don't really do it. I will show you the last ten minutes 
watch that crazy, watch that crazy movie again. It's better than Interstellar, probably. You know? uh, okay, so thanks very much, and tomorrow we go on. Thank you.